This is day 14 of our daily Bible reading. We will read Exodus chapters 3 through 6 and Psalm chapter 14. Lord God, please have mercy on us. Please show your compassion in our lives. We need your grace. We are so lost without your direction. Help us, Lord, in our times of need, in our weaknesses, in our times of trouble. We know, Lord, that you are a shield and a fortress to those who have their faith in you. We also know, Lord, that you will never abandon us. And Lord, just like you remembered your people Israel, you remember us today. But more importantly, Lord, you are faithful and we are not. And help us to remember you in our times of trouble, that we may run to the right place and that our allegiances would be correct. Please guide us into your scripture today. Please allow the Holy Spirit to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Amorite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Now behold, The cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of our fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am 
who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. Go, and gather the elders of Israel together, and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Amorite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite, to a land flowing with milk and honey. They will pay heed to what you say, and you, with the elders of Israel, will come to the king of Egypt, and you will say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. So now, please, let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go, except under compulsion. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters. Thus you will plunder the Egyptians. Then Moses said, What if they will not believe me, or listen to what I say? For they may say, The Lord has not appeared to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A staff. Then he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. The Lord furthermore said to him, Now put your hand into your bosom. So he put his hand into his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then he said, Put your hand into your bosom again. So he put his hand into his bosom again, and when he took it out of his bosom, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, or heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the last sign. But if they will not believe even these two signs, or heed what you say, then you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, 
I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant. For I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. But he said, Please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. Then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses, and he said, Is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently. And moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I, even I, will be with your mouth and his mouth. And I will teach you what you are to do. Moreover, he shall speak for you to the people. And he will be as a mouth for you and you will be as God to him. You shall take in your hand this staff, with which you shall perform the signs. Then Moses departed, and returned to Jethro his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go, that I may return to my brethren who are in Egypt, and see if they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and mounted them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. Moses also took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the signs which I will put in your power. But I will harden his heart, so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Now it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. And she said, You are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time she said, You are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now the Lord said to Aaron, Go to meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. He then performed the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed, 
And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and worshipped. Afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please, let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Otherwise, he will fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you draw the people away from their work? Get back to your labors. Again, Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are now many, and you would have them cease from their labors. So the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters over the people and their foremen, saying, You are no longer to give the people straw to make brick as previously. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the quota of bricks which they are making previously, you shall impose on them. You are not to reduce any of it. Because they are lazy, therefore they cry out. Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let the labor be heavier on the men, and let them work at it, so that they will pay no attention to false words. So the taskmasters of the people and their foremen went out and spoke to the people, saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I am not going to give you any straw. You go and get straw for yourselves, wherever you can find it, but none of your labor will be reduced. So the people scattered through all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters pressed them, saying, Complete your work quota, your daily amount, just as when you had straw. Moreover, the foremen of the sons of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not completed your required amount, either yesterday or today, in making brick as previously? Then the foremen of the sons of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, why do you deal this way with your servants? There is no straw given to your servants, yet they keep saying to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are being beaten, but it is the fault of your own people. But he said, You are lazy, very lazy. Therefore you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. So go now and work for you will be given no straw, yet you must deliver the quota of bricks. The foremen of the sons of Israel saw that they were in trouble, because they were told, You must not reduce your daily amount of bricks. When they left Pharaoh's presence, they met Moses and Aaron as they were waiting for them. They said to them, May the Lord look upon you and judge you, for you have made us 
odious in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for under compulsion he will let them go, and under compulsion he will drive them out of his land. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel, because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from your bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Go, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? For I am unskilled in speech. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, and gave them a charge to the sons of Israel and to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of their fathers' households. The sons of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, Hanak and Palu, Hezron and Carmi, these are the families of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, and Jamin, and Ohad, and Jachin, and Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the families of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations. Gershon, and Kohath, and Merari, and the length of Levi's life was 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei, according to their families. The sons of Kohath, Amram, and Izhar, and Hebron, and Uziel. And the length of Kohath's life was 133 years. The sons of Merari, 
Mali, and Mushi. These are the families of the Levites, according to their generations. Amram married his father's sister, Jochebed, and she bore him Moses and Aaron. And the length of Amram's life was 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah and Nepheg and Zikri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael and Elzaphan and Sithri. Aaron married Elisheba, the daughter of Amminadab, the sister of Nashan, and she bore him Nadab and Abihu, Eliezer and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Asir and Elkanah and Abiasaph. These are the families of the Korites. Aaron's son Eliezer married one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the father's households of the Levites, according to their families. It was the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt, according to their hosts. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the sons of Israel from Egypt. It was the same Moses and Aaron. Now it came about on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I speak to you. But Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am unskilled in speech. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? Psalm chapter 14 For the choir director, a psalm of David. The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all the workers of wickedness not know, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion, when the Lord restores his captive people. Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. Okay, here we are at a very important piece of scripture as we enter into the ten plagues of Egypt. But before we get into the plagues themselves, we need to meet with a man named Moses, someone who, at this current time, is not qualified to lead the people of Israel. But yet God graciously extends so much mercy and patience with Moses. I hope you felt that way when you read this, because reading how whiny and how complaining and how afraid Moses was 
it really makes you wonder how Moses came from this to becoming a great leader of a whole band of people that were wandering the wilderness for 40 years. What we need to be reminded of is that Moses is just like us. He is no different than any of us. Do you think that anyone in their base state would be capable of fulfilling God's will in anything they do? Absolutely not. God has to instill that into us. But not only that, but he puts trials, he puts situations in our lives in order to make us better, to help us to depend on him more, to learn the deeper things of God, and then we are able to more appropriately do his will. Moses is no different. He is being prepared for a great assignment. And through the course of his training, so to speak, then we will see Moses become the man that receives great accolades throughout the remainder of the Bible. He is noted as being the most humble man that ever walked the face of the earth, except for Christ. He is likened to be a great prophet. He is likened to be a great leader. The Pharisees call themselves children of Abraham and followers of Moses. I mean, that's a big responsibility that Moses has on his shoulders, and he has no idea what he's walking into. But the Lord is most patient with him, and we see his grace upon grace upon compassion upon compassion in how he deals with Moses. You see a strong dynamic of father and son right here, how he nurtures Moses, how he comforts Moses, how he allows Moses to express what he feels, and yet the Lord dispels all worries and anxieties. It's a beautiful picture, and he does that with us as well. This is the same God. The same God that talked to Moses is the same God that saved you. Don't forget that. This is not fiction. This is reality. This is a historical account of a man used by God to define a people for God's own possession. So God gets Moses' attention by causing a bush to be burning up, but yet it isn't consumed. It just remains on fire, or at least appears to be on fire, and yet it's not being deteriorated at all. It's not burning up. And that surprised Moses. He's like, hey, I got to go check this out. And when he gets close, then the Lord speaks to him through the fire. Now, it mentions here that Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Okay, This is not saying that God was showing his full glory to him. Because elsewhere in the Bible, it says that no one has seen God at any time. So how do we reconcile that with what's going on here? The most that Moses ever saw of the true glory of God was the backside of it, to see the very edge, tail end of it. And he had to be propped up into a rock in order to not be destroyed by what he saw. That is the extent by which Moses saw God. But what it tells us in verse 2 is that it was the angel of the Lord. And now it may be an angel, but typically when it mentions it like this, 
is mentioning that God himself appears in a human form. And again, this is usually called a Christophany or theophany, which is a physical manifestation of God the Father, or a Christophany being Jesus Christ himself in a pre-incarnate form. So God is revealing himself in a way that humans can tolerate, because humans cannot understand or comprehend the full glory of God. So this is a physical manifestation that God has allowed for Moses to see, but it is not truly God's glory, if you know what I mean. So he's been given assignments, and I want to make clear as well that at the end of chapter 2, it says that when Israel was sighing because of their bondage, and they were crying for help, that God remembered his covenant and heard their groaning. Does that mean he didn't hear their groaning before, or that he forgot about his covenant? No. And when it mentions it like this in the ancient Hebrew, is that it denotes a call to action. God has always been aware of the situation. He has never forgotten the covenant he made with the forefathers. For God to forget or not pay attention would deny his omniscience, his ability to know all things, or his omnipresence, his ability to be everywhere at once. God hears all the time. He may not always respond, but he is always there, and he always knows what is going on. So the way that we should understand it is as if the Bible is telling us God has decided to take action at this time, and he uses Moses to that effect. God provides great comfort, great confidence, great power to Moses, and Moses time and time again tries to get out of it. Can you imagine that? God meeting you face to face, and you're trying to weasel your way out of that assignment. Part of me wants to slap Moses, right? But again, Moses is an example of us as well. We are just as stubborn or just as flighty as he is as well. So he begins by saying, okay, I will go, but then the people are going to ask me, who sent me? You say the Lord, but what is his name? And then we see a beautiful revelation of who God is to Moses. And this is his name for all mankind moving forward. The name Yahweh, or your translation might be Jehovah, depends on how it's pronounced. The reason why there's a difference is because of the way things are said in the ancient Hebrew. This name, where it says, I am who I am, denotes four letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Y-H-W-H. Ancient Hebrew does not have any vowels, if you can even comprehend that. So when you see these four letters next to each other in ancient Hebrew, it is unknown how it was exactly supposed to be pronounced. So our best guesses would be Yahweh or Yehovah. That's why you see it written in two different ways, but it's really the same what we call the tetragrammaton, the four letters that denote God's name. This is his revelation to mankind, and this is the way that he's chosen to reveal himself 
in that he is the I am, meaning that he is the one who is. And later on you'll see in Scripture, the one who is, the one who will be, the one who is to come, that is all denoting the same understanding of his name, that he is self-existing. No one created him. He does not need anyone. He is completely on his own in a class of his own. No one created him. He never ceased to be, and he will never stop ceasing to be. Our mortal minds cannot grasp that fully, but that is the reality of the God that we serve. So in Genesis, it mentioned the name Lord many times, but the way that it was pronounced back then was the word Adonai, which means Lord, as if you were to say Master. But this understanding of Lord is his self-existing name, Yahweh. Now, out of respect and fear of violating some of the laws of Exodus chapter 20, for example, and out of respect for God and his person, when the Hebrew writers would use his name, they would not always put the name Yahweh in there. Sometimes they would just put the name Adonai in order to not defile God's name. And this name is so sacred that when they wrote copies of the Bible in the ancient Hebrew, every time they would have to write God's name, they would get a fresh quill in fresh ink, and they would write that name, and then they would discard it so that they would not taint it. Now, while some of that may be superstitious, the intent behind it is very good. We are to be as respectful to God, not only in just his name, but in his person, as the ancient Hebrews were when they wrote their scripture. That is how sacred that name was to the people of Israel. Is God's name sacred to you? Is he special to you, and do you fear him for who he is? I think we all need to work on that a bit, but this is something that we should see in the Bible and directly apply to ourselves. God has revealed who he is to Moses, but who is he to you? Is he the Lord to you? My hope is that this is a yes, but only you know that. So after God reveals himself to Moses, Moses tries to make every excuse to not be used. And God gets angry with him. And even though God gets frustrated with Moses, he doesn't give up on him. Do you notice that? Moses is a very insufferable man right now in making all these excuses why he can't do it. I mean, for goodness sakes, man, you're talking with God in a physical manifestation. He tells you to throw your staff on the ground, and it turns into a snake. And you run away from the snake. He tells you to put your hand in your robe, and you pull it out, and it's covered with leprosy. And then you put it back in your robe, and you pull it back out, and it's fully healed. And even with that, you still don't believe? Even with that, you still won't obey? Again, we can be frustrated with Moses about this, just like God was but we're no different than him. We are just as stubborn, if not worse. Because after God dispelled all of Moses' fears, 
even though he still had his concerns. He went. Can we say that about ourselves? Can we say that we have our doubts and we have our concerns when it comes to God, but will that deter us from obeying him? It better not, because that's denying God as master, as Lord. We need to be obedient to him in everything. And if we are not, we're risking some serious trouble. Whether you grasp fully what God is trying to do, whether you think you're qualified or not, it is very clear throughout the entirety of Scripture that if God commands you to go, you go. Why? Because not only who is telling you to go, but he promises that he will supply you with what you need in order to do the job. May that be resources, may that be skills, may that be opportunities. Who knows? Only you know, and everyone's unique in this way. But God will supply everything needed to fulfill his purpose. He will not send you out empty-handed. Although Moses continued to resist, God worked with him. God allowed him to be this way and accommodated him. By Moses saying that he did not have the ability to speak, then he brought his brother Aaron into the picture. And Aaron is going to be the spokesman. And Moses is going to tell Aaron what to say, and Aaron is going to be speaking it. Now, near the end of chapter 4, what I find very interesting in verse 24 is that after he sends Moses to Egypt, it says that the Lord met him to kill him. Now, why do you think that is, after everything that God had just done? Well, apparently it's because Moses has been lazy. He had been putting off circumcising his son, which was a direct violation of God's command. Now, at this time, the law had not been written yet, but it was very clear through the time of Abraham onward that the covenant with God's people was that all children, once they're a few days old, you had to get them circumcised. And apparently Moses did not do that. Now, we don't know exactly how Zipporah, Moses' wife, knew that God was coming to kill him, but she saw that there was something needing to be done, and she went and just did it right then and there. She removed her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet and said, You are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. What God is trying to teach Moses right here is that he needed to learn quick that disobeying God and incurring his wrath was much more serious than anything that could befall him from the wrath of Pharaoh. Do you see that? Pharaoh is indeed a great man, and he is to be feared to some respect, because he is a cruel leader. But nothing compares to God. God is far greater than Pharaoh, and not obeying God is far worse than not obeying Pharaoh. I hope we see that in our individual arenas as well. Not obeying God is worse than not obeying your boss at the workplace. Not obeying God is worse than not obeying your spouse or your parents. God is superior in every way, and we need to listen to him. In chapter 5, we see Moses and Aaron arrive at Egypt 
and talk with Pharaoh. And Pharaoh mocked them. He scoffed at what they said. He's like, who is the Lord that I'm going to listen to him? I don't know this Lord of yours. Oh, I'm not going to let your people go. You crazy? All that I see you two are doing are distracting the Israelites from their work. Get back to work. If you really have this much time to think about a Lord of yours, then that means that you don't have enough work to do. You must be getting very lazy. So since you have all this free time to think about a God of yours, I'm going to go ahead and take away your straw. Now before, I used to provide straw to your people so that you can make bricks. Now you're going to have to go find the straw for yourself. And yet, your quota will remain the same. You're going to have to do more with less. That stings a little to hear because that reminds me of the business world, and I have heard that many times in my life. So in light of what happened, the Israelites turn around and they blame Moses and Aaron for this. Because you came over here saying the Lord was going to help us, but now things are getting worse. You guys came and just ruined everything. Now our lives are ten times harder because of you. And we see Moses cry out to God in the same frustration. Lord, why did you send me to do more harm than good? Ever since I came to speak to these people, you have not delivered your people. You have caused harm to your people. Be very careful, Moses. You have really stepped the line here. But God doesn't get frustrated with Moses in this moment. He understands his issue. He understands the confusion. He understands the doubt. But God does this intentionally. And the whole reason why any of this is going to happen in the Exodus is to remove any doubt in anyone's mind that it was God that is going to do all this. God always stacks the cards against himself because no one is going to be able to stop him. And he does it in such a way so that no man can take credit for it. He puts people in impossible situations in order that his glory will be manifested and that he will get all the credit. He is the only one who can do these things and it's only appropriate that he gets the credit for it. So that's exactly what happens here. Things are getting so bad, so severe, that not even Moses and Aaron were able to do anything. So who else is able to do it? There's only one, the Lord. The Lord is going to do something, and he is going to cause something so great that even today it is still remembered as one of the greatest miracles and the greatest deliverance of all mankind. There is no event in human history that is greater than this in magnitude. Now, obviously, the redemption of our souls by Jesus Christ is the greatest thing that ever happened. Don't hear that. But what I'm saying is, at the scale it was done, this is immense. And it was told throughout many civilizations that this happened. This was world-renowned in its day, and it still is. God is going to act, and he's going to act in a magnificent way in the next few chapters. And to wrap up the reading for today in chapter 6, the second half of the chapter starts reading into families. Now, this genealogy is there because 
it identifies the lineage of Moses and Aaron to legitimize it. It's positioning them as the ones who were directly appointed to being deliverers. And it is no coincidence that they are of the line of Levi. The Levites are going to be the priests of Israel. So it's no wonder that they come from that line, because Aaron is going to be the high priest of Israel, and Moses is a priest in his own right, but he's also a prophet. He is the one who is going to tell of all the future events, and the reason he's a priest as well is because he is the one who often goes into God's direct presence. So he is their prophet and priest, and in some way a king, because he is the leader of a great people. He's one of the few people in the Bible who have the three offices together, prophet, priest, and king. Most people don't have those. They only have one. But there are a few significant people throughout history, like him, King David, for example, that have all three offices. Now, I hope you feel as I do, in that I don't plan the Psalms to come out like this. But by the grace of God, there is no coincidence. But our reading in Psalms today completely correlated with the reading in Exodus. What David is lamenting here is the foolishness of man. There is such corrupt morality in our midst, and the whole human race is that way. There are many passages of Scripture, especially in the New Testament, that talk about our state as being dead in our trespasses, that we are basically walking corpses when it comes to our spiritual life because we don't have any spiritual life in us. God is the one who quickens us, who revives us, who gives us life in the Spirit. But from the moment that we were conceived, we were born with a sinful nature. We do not seek after God. We are not righteous in any way. The fool in their heart says there is no God, and we're all corrupt. This is where we came from. And what's very important about this is that as Christians, we should never forget where we came from. We need to be reminded often how far God has taken us and how lost we would be without him. At no time should we ever forget this fact that in your own power, you would accomplish nothing. You would be living in spiritual squalor. And in my case, I would probably be dead on the road somewhere, or overdosed in my house, or being a complete waste of life without God. Sometimes I'm very hard on myself when I don't meet my own standards, or when I know I don't give my absolute best. But even in those moments, I still recognize that I have only come this far because God has brought me here, and he's not done with me yet. I know he has a lot of work to do in me. But this is the reality of the world around us. There is no one who does good, not even one, not in their natural state. That is why what is called the spiritual baptism, the one that regenerates you into knowing Christ, that is what causes you to become good. Now, again, the goodness is not you. The goodness is the imputation of Christ in you. But now you seek after God. 
but now you have love and affection for God. We do not doubt that he exists. That is because God instilled that into us through the Holy Spirit. So yeah, from the very first verse of this chapter, we see practical atheism. There is no God. And that is just a warped understanding of the world around us. But praise God that he gives us sobriety in these days. And not only that, but he, just like David, shows us that there is a kingdom that is coming in verse 7. That there will be a day that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. It already did to some degree, but we still have a messianic kingdom. We still have the kingdom of heaven to look forward to when the Lord will reign from on high. He already is reigning on high, but he will fully manifest himself and he will destroy Satan in the final days. And that's what we have to look forward to. Our scripture to memorize for today is going to be, at the very least, the second half of chapter 14 in the Psalms, verse 3. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's something we need to remember. There is no one who does good. And if at any time we give people more credit than they deserve, we need to be reminded of this verse. The nice people that we know in our lives, the people that give a lot of resources, the philanthropists of this world, the people who help out in the nursing homes and at the homeless shelters, those are indeed good acts, but they are not good. There is only one who is good, and that is God. And through him, we can be good as well. But without him, we are not good. It is that simple. And with that, that's all I have for today. Thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.